0: Please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at Oberly Risk.com or reach out to August directly at August.Foker at Oberly Risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Craig Fuller. Craig is the founder of FreightWaves, a data and media business focused on freight and supply chains. Freightwaves is a VC-backed company with $19 million in revenue, with editorial content, a data product, job board, video content, and multiple podcasts. Prior to Freightwaves, Craig had no background in media, but has built quite a playbook for media businesses with a data component. Craig, as of a month ago, is also the new owner of Flying Magazine, an iconic blue-chip publishing brand in the general aviation community, which we discuss extensively in this episode. For a deeper background on FreightWaves, I highly recommend his episode on a media operator, which we'll link to in the show notes. During our conversation, we discuss his fascinating background within his family's trucking business, starting a tech business before FreightWaves, launching FreightWaves, and his acquisition of Flying Magazine and his plans for growth and improvement. Enjoy. I've been super excited to have you, Craig, on the podcast ever since... Preston mentioned that you could come on. I've loved studying FreightWaves and then seeing your acquisition of Flying Magazine. I'd love for you to just take us through the one-minute version of zero to starting FreightWaves and then acquiring Flying. Can you give us your background in a nutshell?
1: super excited to be here. You know, it's interesting because there isn't enough resources out there for small businesses. There's a lot of conversation about venture capital and what's happening. You can find plenty of content out there. The challenges if you're a small business someone thinking about buying a business there aren't a lot of great resources for you it's not a very sexy conversation for many people so it's an underserved part of the market i certainly applaud you for building this and hopefully this conversation brings resources for people and guidance i've been around business my whole life my father was a, an entrepreneur and started the company it went from a bootstrap company he didn't raise capital He ended up taking it public in 1994 and then ended up buying it back and taking it private. Very large company. So I sort of saw my father effectively bootstrap a business and got to over a billion dollars in revenue. So he was my big mentor in my life. And I always dreamed of taking over his business one day. But it wasn't my fate. My brother, my older brother, ended up becoming the CEO. And I didn't want to work for my older brother. So I decided the only way to sort of do something was to get outside the family business and start something myself. So I went out and took a business that was a part of my father's business, which was in payments, and spent five years trying to figure out how to build a technology company without very good guidance. I didn't have a board. My father had ran a trucking company, and a very successful one, but it He wasn't prepared to sort of lead a technology company, which is very different. The motion and the way to run a technology company is quite different. And so I had to learn a lot of things the hard way. And this was in 2005, 2010, where there weren't a lot of really good venture resources. It was sort of in that lull between the dot com rush and sort of the 2010, sort of post great recession environment where people were still cynical about startups. We hadn't seen what we've seen in the last decade, particularly technology startups. And so there wasn't a lot of great resources that went out there, so I had to learn a lot of things the hard way, and I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but I ended up selling that business in 2012 and stayed on as part of it for two years. Just wasn't a great employee. My father, we had retained a piece of the business, and I worked for my father as part of that engagement. My dad, the company struggled, being a technology company had struggled, so my dad ended up firing me in 2014, which was really difficult for me. If you're a founder of a company or you're an entrepreneur, not only are you spending a lot of time in your business, but oftentimes your social network is defined by your business. And so the company was effectively out of cash, and when my dad fired me, I couldn't really tell my side of the story, which was we ran out of money and basically... My father resented me, blamed me largely for putting the company in that position. But I couldn't go tell anybody that. So I just sort of disappeared. And I knew at that point that I could never work with my father ever again. Just the foundation was broken there. He would ever support anything I did financially at that point. And so sort of like burn a bridge. And I think if you've ever been a part of a family business, this dynamic is very real. A lot of people who are sort of multi-generational businesses The fathers want the sons or the daughters to go work for them. And you're often unprepared to go find a real job or go start another business because you didn't see that happen. And that was sort of my situation in 2014. Getting fired is basically everything was gone. And so I had to start over. And I thought I'd be an employee. It was a really, I found out really quickly I was a really bad employee. Like when you've been running your own show for 10 years, even though it's been funded by my dad. I just didn't know how to be an employee. Instinct isn't built into me. And so I also knew that I couldn't go rely on my father for any kind of funding or support. So I had to go do it on my own. And I was sort of an existential crisis. I was very depressed. I felt like I had lost everything in my life and was really, really down, like as, as low as any person could possibly be. I realized after taking a job that I hated, even though I was getting paid really well, not working very hard in my opinion, but getting paid really well to do what I thought was very little, I ended up deciding I want to go start my own business. And that's when Freight Waves came about.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what Freight Waves is for those who don't know and how you decided to start that?
1: So Freight Waves, I was day trading. So in addition to doing this job that I was really didn't enjoy and the company didn't really need me, frankly. I was doing some day trading on the side to sort of keep my mind sort of working. I became really enamored with financial markets. The way the stock market works, this is 2015. The commodities were crashing in 2015. Oil prices were crashing. Everything was sort of melting down in the commodities, in the industrial side of the economy in 2015. And CNBC, which I would keep on all day long, was talking about The global shipping market's the barometer for economic activity. And I thought coming back from trucking, because that's where I started my dad's business was in, I couldn't understand why they didn't talk about the trucking industry, which is actually a more important component of the domestic economy or freight moves to trucking. So I came up with this idea to basically create a data business and a media business dedicated to freight movement. And that was really what started with freeways. Day one, I didn't think media was sort of in the components, but the data piece of it uh, was. And that's where we sort of set out what I set out to start. And at that point, I was making six figures on a job I hated. But I was like, I'm going to burn my bridge. I had enough. I burned through all my money that I had saved my entire life day trading unsuccessfully. I had a credit card and had no debt at that point because I had Sold my house and basically was just like living through everything I had ever saved or had made, trying to day trade myself to like literally gambling my future. My wife, who we weren't married at the time, had just met. And she's like, you have to stop this day trading madness. Like you're going to run through all your money. And so she wanted me to do something else. But I didn't want to stay as an employee at this company or an employee for that matter. And I said, I want to go start something. I didn't know what it was. I knew that was my inspiration. So I sort of put this idea of what was happening what I was doing for day trading Alongside the sort of reality of starting my own business, I came and told her I was going to start and I was going to leave. And I gave notice and a job that I didn't have to quit, but I felt like it was unethical for me to stay making this money, even though I did not care about the company I did not love the company. I just didn't feel right sticking around there. So I gave notice and told I was quitting. It took them three weeks to get rid of me on the payroll, which was really weird. I was like, I've just given you notice, like why aren't you firing me right now? and i I would get paid, but I'd feel guilty. It was really strange to me that they just didn't resign me immediately. It was just weird, but they didn't, so they paid me for a couple more weeks and Meanwhile, I just hammered it. I went out and started freight waves, and the first thing I did was went on social media and started network and I think I was told founders this is that if you're going to start a business, the first thing you should do if starting out in a new industry that you're not familiar with is go find advisors of the business that you want to be when you grow up. Like, let's imagine 10 years forward. Go out and start networking the people who have worked at companies that you sort of dream of what your business will be in 10 years. So if it's super successful and it's the unicorn and you're you're on the face of Fortune and Forbes magazine and you're this really successful CEO, what does your business look like? In 10 years, and I said, go find. Them. You know, I tell founders to go find those, and that's what I did. Is I basically just hammered LinkedIn. I networked with anybody and everybody at the highest levels of the biggest companies, and I was shocked at how responsive these people were. And I was very direct. I think one of the things that I get a lot of inbound interest on LinkedIn, and people are like, Hey, I want to pick your brain. It's just not that interesting to me. I'm like, Look, I'm starting this business. I want to spend 30 minutes with you. I just want a couple of advice, and that's it. And if you're interested in being an advisor, here you go. So one of the things that I did was I gave my advisors a really small piece of equity, which at the time they probably just did it because they wanted to be a part of something. I get invited to be an advisor in a lot of companies and I sort of look at it as I would be doing a lot of this stuff anyways, sort of talking to founders and sort of figuring out the journey. But if I get something in return, that's great. As I've had more success, I'm more discriminating what I do, and I actually expect something from the founder, which is a little different just because I have a finite amount of time and my time is very valuable to me. But in those days, I think a lot of the people who did it were just like, hey, this is an interesting idea, and I just want to be a part of the journey, not thinking it would be worth much. Now I look at how much their value has increased. It's actually, we're talking a lot, you know, six figures and higher for just some of them, basically, a couple of emails and that's all they ever did. Some of them were far more involved and, and appreciative, but many of them were there. And I'm, look, I'm happy they, they sort of believed in it, gave me a couple of ideas, maybe a couple of introductions. It was worth it in those days. And so I don't ever regret looking at the capital or the equity that I've given up in a business because at the time that I made those decisions, they were the right decisions. I don't think you can sit there and dwell over the fact that someone's made a lot of money because they believed in you. That just seems ridiculous. Really, I always hear founders sort of complain about that. Unless somebody has effectively taken advantage of you by lying to you or being disingenuous, it's always sort of difficult for founders to look back like, I can't believe that person has 20%. Yeah, but remember, your business, nobody believed in you in those days. You had nothing and they helped you. And so, yes, they had 20%, but that's deserved. That's for the price of showing up and taking your phone call. So anyways, I gave equity to some advisors, and and it worked out really well for them. And they made a lot of introductions. They were able to sort of open up a lot of channels for me, and they helped validate the business and also give me a lot of advice on how to build it. And so I'm very grateful for the work and effort and energy that they poured into it.
0: One book recommendation you gave in an earlier podcast or interview that you did was Bloomberg by Bloomberg. I remember you said you followed that playbook pretty closely and reading through the Bloomberg book, he talks about starting the data end first and then adding media later that was supported with his data. With FreightWaves, it sounds like you did both at the same time. Am I misunderstanding you started one before the other?
1: The media business came out of necessity. So one of the other realities was when we set up FreightWaves, which I bet in those days was not called Waves. But the business that we set up, I tried to get a lot of press. I wrote a press release. And I've never had a problem getting media press in my old company uh, that I ran. And so I couldn't understand why none of the publications would cover the story. Even the local newspaper, like Chattanooga, business news didn't even pick it up. And I'm like, come on, there isn't that much happening here in Chattanooga. But they didn't even take it. I ended up hiring that editor a couple of years later, and he ended up working for me. And I, I gave him a hard time the fact that why didn't you ever take this press release? But the reality was, our business, no one even really believed it would be successful. So I started looking at PR agencies, and I always resented the PR agencies because they feel like oftentimes they don't do very much. I think the tendency for a founder is to go sign a PR agency, and a PR agency doesn't have a lot of a public relations firm, doesn't have a lot of accountability in what, how well they do. I think is pretty consistent. I never really wanted to hire one, but I felt like that was the only way to get any type of interest in the products that we were building and credibility was to get. And I turned down the two. So this is sort of black of success. And I came across a third that said, hey, I'll take you on, but it's $40,000 a month retainer. And I'm like, well, I can't afford $40,000 a month. And so I think he was just being nice. He thought my idea was ridiculous. And so rather than being like, hey, your idea is ridiculous, I'm going to put a really high price out there that you won't accept. And so, of course, I didn't accept it. And he said, hey, if I were you, your story is going to be very difficult. You should go hire someone to write content for you and develop your own organic content. Being insulted and and really frustrated with the lack of anyone taking me serious, I decided to go create my own content. And so I hired, I posted an, an ad for a social media engagement writer, which I don't even know what that means. And a journalist at one of the other big trucking publications joined FreightWaves. And as part of that, I realized really quickly that if we were to drive engagement, we couldn't just write stories about how great this business idea was, the software, this data business was. We had to write stuff that people really wanted to read, which was about the logistics industry, which is what we cover. And the great thing is that this industry that is 9.6 trillion dollars and employs tens of millions of people around the globe, is 12.5% of global GDP, is also going through a massive technology renaissance, where Amazon is there into the freight market, you have drones, you're dealing with Tesla rolling out a semi. All of this stuff is happening. And this is not even when we had massive supply chain dislocations, which we have now. This is pre sort of massive supply chain dislocations. There was a lot of interest in in what was taking place and not great resources. And so he started writing content and people started reading it. I was really proud we got to 50 or 60,000 page views a month, which was a big accomplishment for one writer to go from a cold start. And then he went on vacation and the hurricanes uh, hit Houston. This hurricane sort of pummeled Houston. And it was a big deal. And I had happened in my past life, working for my father, ran FEMA's disaster logistics operation Well, the writer was on vacation. And so I started writing basically about what to expect when expecting a hurricane was sort of the the headline. And I wrote this sort of firsthand account of preparing for a hurricane. And I used his name, was written in his name, which he was very upset about. I wasn't a great writer. But I noticed on the site we were getting 10, 20, 30,000 hits. So all of a sudden, we went from 50 to 60,000 a month, or on average, 1,000 to 2,000 hits per article, to like this thing was blowing it out of the water. And I realized people really liked what I had to say. It was non edited, there was no copy editing in those days. It was just somebody like really engaged with this person understands what's going to happen on, with this hurricane. And so I started writing a couple of more articles and people were reading my content. I'm like, well, OK, we're on to something. And that really began this realization that what the freight and logistics industry wanted was information about what was happening from a firsthand sort of operator standpoint, somebody who'd been on the front lines. The way that the media business had been in our industry was right, was taking press releases and repurposing them. Content that wasn't really a p- highly opinionated. But one thing that a lot of publishers struggle with in media businesses is they don't write anything that could offend an advertiser. And so they're afraid to sort of write these really sort of deep investigative journalism stories about your industry that just didn't exist. But we didn't care because we had nothing to lose. We didn't have a media business. It wasn't even our business plan. In fact, when we raised our first institutional round, the media business didn't even make the pitch deck. It wasn't even something we considered important to the business, but people were reading it and then people were wanting to advertise with it. And so all of a sudden we realized, okay, this is a really interesting way to build content. So we had launched this media brand sort of accidentally, and we decided that we needed to put a conference together. And so we created this conference and the first one we created had like 150 people show up. We knew nothing about running a conference. It was the worst conference I'd ever been to. Like we didn't have badges pre-printed. We didn't even have refreshments. We just didn't know what we were doing. People were like, hey, I'm happy to be here. It was my own conference, but I'm like, I'm never going back to that conference ever again. If my team were to host a conference, Craig were to host another conference, I'm never going to his conference. Is what I'm thinking to myself. And so we said, why don't we create something really, really awesome? We can get people here. And so we launched a conference that was bringing technology companies together. And I had seen this in payments where you have a lot of companies that do like live demos on stage. PowerPoint is banned. And I was like, that's really cool. Can you create live demos on stage that are not PowerPoint, not pre-done, inside of a live audience of decision makers that are buying technology? And that was how we created an events business. And so all of a sudden – We had raised some money and we have this media business, which is starting to grow. We have this event business, which is doing exceptionally well. We then finally got to the point of launching our data product. So our data product was sort of incubated for six months and then we launched it at our conference. We launched it at our event. That was sort of how it all came together. So within time that we raised our first institutional capital, which would have been October, 2017, and we had ran out of money. I literally had spent every dime I had taken out a, a credit card I'd wasted all my money day trading. And to start what's now Freight Waves, I had good credit. So i had taken out a credit card and opened up a zero APR credit card with Bank of America. And I had a credit line of $50,000 because at the point when I started this, I was still employed. So that gave me a, a pretty nice credit line. I ran up the $50,000. Bank of America zero APR credit card funded Freight, the original investment we raised a little bit of angel funding, but we ran through it. And so my wife and I were getting married in September of 17. I literally had no money to even go on a honeymoon. We were out because everything had gone to the business and we couldn't make payroll. And we just got lucky because we found a $75,000 investment with an accelerator out of Atlanta and an institutional fund that took our series C and put 3.4 million in it because they believed in me and the team that I had assembled. And that was it. And so- we raised the money, they gave us the money to go build the product. And we meanwhile had this media business that was evolving and launched this user conference without users. They people did not realize when we hosted our first event, we had 750 people show up. These were like C-level executives at some of the largest companies. They didn't realize we wanted to a user conference. They had no idea that this was our launch party. We didn't sell it as a launch party, we didn't describe it as a launch party. We had 30 other companies demoing, and we put ourselves in the middle of the demo stack, and we gave ourselves seven minutes like every other company that demoed. And so people thought they were going for that. They were really watching. It was all about us. And I would say all about us. It was certainly a springboard to become what we became. And so that was how we launched our data product.
0: Being new to media, what sorts of things did you not expect going into creating a media business?
1: So our media business today, half of our revenue is media The money in our media business comes from advertising. So it's free content. The data business, it comes from subscriptions. But when you launch a media business, the thing that I didn't sort of appreciate about media is A, that people would read content. I just didn't understand that if you put out content on a consistent basis that people read it. One of the things that I think is often sort of underappreciated is the secret to doing content is cadence. I think this is very hard for individual contributors. I have the utmost respect for you as a putting this together because it is very difficult to be inspired every single day or, or weekly with something new. And after a while, it becomes a drain of a lot of energy. And so, one of the things that we found, or I found, is that the secret to media businesses is constant cadence. One of the things that I think a lot of contributors in media or anybody putting out content, they always get scared they're going to say something or there's going to be a troll that attacks them. You need to get over that. If you're going to write content, it's such a reality of doing it. You're going to upset people. People are going to attack you. If you're really big at it, they're going to find you – know, it's like the guy in the, the jail yard and you get shanked. The old saying, you go, if you're really successful, somebody wants to punch the guy that's really – the, the, the really big guy in the, in the yard – because it gives them credibility. Oh, they're going after this person. So the bigger you get, the more trolls you're going to invite. I think a lot of founders or anybody that's doing media gets concerned that if they write something and it's not well-written or they write something and it's not good, then people are going to attack them or judge them. And that isn't how it works. We, you know, The great thing about Twitter and society, this modern media age, is if you read horrible content, you're going to forget about it. And if you read something that really sort of creates tension or you have a problem with the content, that's actually a good thing from a content contributor standpoint because people remember you. They're like, oh, well, this person is wrong for all these reasons. That's the best thing. What you don't want in the content business is being forgotten. That is the absolute death for a content producer is to be forgotten. So it's better to put something that's polarizing out than not put anything at all. But one of the things that we've learned is having cadence. Is setting up constant content, which is very difficult to do unless you're committed to it, and basically slaving it out every single day and every single week. And What I see is oftentimes in our industry, a lot of uh, people in the logistics industry which have sort of tried to emulate what we've done with putting out content. So they're committed to it for a couple of months, maybe even a year, where they create a new podcast brand and they create new content. They invest a lot of money in it and they're not getting the returns. It doesn't sort of ignite. It's a slow sort of flame, if you will, a slow fire. It's a very slow burn for them. And they just become disenfranchised with it because it's not all of a sudden they're super successful and all of a sudden they're super well-known. It doesn't achieve their goals quickly. And so they sort of lose patience with it and give up. If that were us, then we wouldn't have been here because we also, it took six months before we found a voice. It took a while before it sort of caught fire. And so you just have to stick with it. The other thing is cadence is very important. One of the roles I have with Freight Waves and now Flying, which I acquired, is when you go to the site, it needs to be fresh content every single time. Now that's hard to do. It takes staff and takes resources and takes something you need to say. But if you're gonna build a scaled media brand, you need to have something fresh. If you think about that from your own life, if you're into sports, or you're into just news generally, or business news, if you go on to ESPN.com, or you go on to CNN, or Fox, or MSNBC, or whatever your leaning of choice, your destination of choice, and it's the same content day after day, you're not gonna go there anymore. And I think a lot of companies, they get a piece of content, they're very successful with it, it just stays there indefinitely, and the site becomes very bland the media companies, ESPNs and CNNs and Fox and ESNBC, for that matter, have figured out that they have to constantly be refreshing the content. And they could take the same story and do it five different times, slightly different, but it's effectively the same story. That's what makes successful content. So well, the other thing I often hear, but even by the media people who come from a publishing background, is that I've already covered this story. I don't need to cover it again. And it's actually not true. You should be covering it or they go back and re-edit the old blog. So they do this new story and they go back and put additional content in. That's a different piece of content. You should, be you should be writing something new so that people know it's a new take. The other thing about media that I would say, closing thoughts on that, is that what drives successful traffic in our digital age is the headline and the photo. Those are the two most important pieces of real estate you have in a content business is, what is the headline? Is it interesting enough And what is the clickable photo? A lot of people use click art. They use clip art that they get from um, sort of shutterstock and stuff. I actually think that's not great because people are always constantly resurfacing the same photos. And they look very obviously as shutterstock images. Whereas if you took an image that was not just from your phone and you posted it, but it was unique, that is more likely to be successful than something that looks like it was Shutterstock. And I think that's always difficult for people to understand. At the end of the day, you have to remember if you're doing content, you're competing against all of the other things that grab people's attention. People want to be engaged, they want something unique, they want something that's that creates an opinion or an emotion out of them. And so it has to be interesting enough for the person to click on it and share it. And you can only do that if you have the right headline and the right piece of photography or art that is different than everything else out out there in somebody's Twitter feed or Facebook feed.
0: Yeah, certainly. I'd love to dive into Flying Magazine and just talk a little bit about the company you purchased. Can you describe Flying Magazine and then some of the attributes that you found really attractive about the company? Yeah,
1: so Flying Magazine started by a guy named Ziff Davis, which was sort of this iconic magazine publisher, sort of like, if you look at Hearst is sort of the one of the 20th century leaders in media and print media or Pulitzer is there. You also have like Conde Nast business is sort of an iconic publisher. Zip Davis was one of those as well. So he found a lot of success in building lifestyle magazines or special interest publications. Popular science was one of the most successful ones that he owned or started, but actually Flying Magazine or what has become Flying Magazine was his first go at it was he was inspired by Charles Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic Ocean and decided that aviation was going to go through this renaissance because it was now 20 some odd years after the Wright Brothers and people it was starting to to become and create a whole new society or the way we think of society and I think you cannot take the airplane out of the past hundred years you cannot understand history without the airplane over the past hundred years. Without the airplane, much of what we know as society would not exist. And so that is what is so amazing is that this magazine, Flying, was his first sort of go into developing aviation content, became the largest and most loved. And I will tell you, I bought it a couple of weeks ago, and when I acquired it, I bought it because I loved the magazine it had an emotional response for me. It was one of the first magazines that I ever bought when I started flying as a teenager. And so I had this just really high affinity, very similar to someone who probably is a big sports person, would have the affinity for Sports Illustrated or perhaps a sports team like the Yankees. If you're a Yankees fan and your chance to own the Yankees is often has nothing to do with financial metrics, but all to do with the fact that you get to own the Yankees and you get to sort of tell your friends you own the Yankees and a proud trophy. And I think... This is how I felt about flying, is that flying to me was something that I was gifting to myself. It was a trophy purchase, like a piece of artwork, but it was the brand for an aviator. And so it was started in 1927, had a really successful run as a print publisher. And then in the last decade, as print publishing had sort of sidelined and really struggled, the investment was not made to really bring flying up to sort of the digital age. Yes, they have a great, highly engaged website and a highly engaged audience, but from someone who comes at it fresh as a media executive, as a digital media executive, it's not a standard that I would expect for a digital media property to hand. And the reason I, I know that is, I had started flying when I was 13 years old. I had stopped in college at 20, being a pilot in my early days, was consuming a lot of content, and flying was a go-to sort of brand for me as a magazine. And then I had stopped. And so earlier this year, I had picked up my aviation hobby again, decided I'd had this really successful run with Freight Waves and think about running a venture-backed startup. If you've raised capital and you have a board, the board is constantly encouraged you to effectively fire yourself. The board wants you to replace yourself as the founder. They want you – and so I had done that, and I had – Basically, taking every job that I ever had at the company, had found people who were much better at those jobs than I was. And so I have become effectively chief evangelist of the company, a strategist. But that's a quite from a time standpoint, that's a hard thing to do. It doesn't take a lot of time to do strategy, like you do it in the shower, you do it in traffic, or you do it at night, whatever that is. And then being an evangelist, this is something we're wired to do as founders. But it's not very time consuming, unlike starting the business from scratch and doing every job you can. And so I just got bored. I was no longer able to just sit and do nothing. I'm like, okay, I need to go find something else to do. And the company freight was running really successful. I have a really great management team, companies growing quickly at a point of cash break, even for a VC back company, that's really important, especially if you're growing as fast as, you know, triple digits as fast as we are. And so I just got bored. And I'm like, I need to go back and do the one hobby that I always loved doing, which is flying. I want to get back into it. So I got back into it, and I started to want to consume the content. And so I started looking around the internet for aviation content, and I was so unmoved. I was unmoved with Flying Magazine. I was unmoved with a lot that's out there. There's some – not to say there isn't good content. There's a lot of great content, but it's all distributed with lots of different places. And a lot of it is just pilots posting stuff on YouTube or aviation evangelists posting stuff. But it's not what I would consider the top. A lot of it's not written with editorial publishers and written from what I would consider a really sort of high-quality media brand would do. And I realized that flying itself still has this affinity for me. I love flying as the magazine, the brand. Like I said, this is like the Yankees or Sports Illustrated. It's something that I'm proud that I'm a part of the community. I always felt like I was. I had read this article written in a media publication called Flashes and Flames, which is a guy by Colin Morrison writes this. It's written for executives. It's probably got a very small distribution of a couple thousand executives, but the most influential executives across media, whether it's the head of media for Bloomberg or the head of the New York Times, or it's written for a very small, highly cultured audience. And he wrote about how magazines have become the trophy assets for billionaires. and He was talking about Steve Jobs's wife when he passed buying The Atlantic. He was talking about Mark Benioff buying Time Magazine. He mentioned Jeff Bezos buying Washington Post, So that basically these media publications with a lot of history have become somewhat trophy assets. they become sort of benefactors. People buy these publications because they love the publication, not to necessarily make a profit. And I thought, well, first of all, I can't afford to buy Bloomberg, and that's my go-to, right? If I were to have a publication that I would want to own, it would be, and I was starting up flying again at the same time, it would be Flying Magazine. This is the Sports Illustrated of, of the aviation industry. And so I decided I'm just going to reach out to the CEO. So I went on LinkedIn, I found him, and I sent him a note. I said, hey, I would like to buy Flying Magazine. Straight up, I was like, look, he's probably not going to respond to me, but I'm not going to waste my time by saying, hey, can we talk? I'm going to tell them exactly what I want, which I think is really important. If you're a founder and you aren't well known, being direct is really important for people who get, I get a lot of inbound inquiries for, because now I'm in media and we have a large distribution. So being very direct and precise of what your intentions are with that conversation is really, really important. And so I said, hey, I'd like to buy Flyer Magazine. And he reached back out a couple of days later and said, hey, let's have a conversation. It's not for sale, but we're happy to have a conversation we did. And a couple months later, I ended up owning it.
0: Are you willing to chat a little bit about some of the things you're looking to add to flying or improve with flying?
1: Yeah. Look, I think magazine publishers oftentimes don't understand digital. And I I think flying is oftentimes what you see, and this is true in flying's case, is you have a tendency to basically protect print. And so there's a desire that you have this revenue and subscription stream from print. And the concern is that if you're, if you're putting all the content on digital at the same moment you put it on print, that you're going to dilute your print subscriptions. I think this is the same thing that the movie studios have struggled with around releases of movies, where they used to go to the theaters and they would sort of release it to the theaters 45 or 60 days before it ends up on a streaming device print publishers think the same way is where they'll create a magazine, say the August edition of this and they'll hold back content for the August edition or some the December edition. We're going to, in flying's case, we're going to focus on jets. I mean, I'm completely making it up, but a jet edition is going to be in December and we're going to hold back all the content for jets until that December edition. So you've gone out for the for six months and sourced all this great content and you prepare it and you get it ready for print. That's how we print publisher things. And then after it's out in December, you wait four months to then release it on digital. Well, guess what? A year potentially has passed since you've prepared those articles. And if it's news, which oftentimes is sort of the pet, you know, something that publishers do a lot of, then it's not even time worthy. The conversation's already happened. And in an age where Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and you name it, and Reddit forums are universal and ubiquitous, if you're not the first, you're the last. And that's the thing that I think a lot of magazine publishers struggle with is they try to protect the print by holding back a lot of the real-time content and they miss this massive window to be the first and primary source. The other thing that I think ends up happening is that there is an underinvestment in digital. If you're print focused, you focus on everything about the print subscription and everything about the print magazine, and you're not putting the type of investments you need in digital. It's not that it's not there. It's just that there's a different sort of DNA to it. I think if you're going to run a media business in the modern news cycle is you almost have to treat the products as separate. So the thing that we're doing flying is saying, the thing that I've learned is that people like myself love flying magazine. Like I get those every single day where someone goes, hey, I love Flying Magazine. People that know me, that are in my network, that I found out have discovered are pilots. But also random people are like, I love this magazine. Or even our editor at Freight Waves, who I had no idea even knew what Flying Magazine was, told me the day I bought it. He's like, the only thing that I've ever been able to do in terms of knowing what to get my dad for Christmas is a subscription to Flying Magazine. And actually, he's the first person that said it, and I've heard it from a couple of people. And so there's just a really, really super engaged audience that wants to be a part of the journey with you or with me in this case, where they're like, okay, here's a digital native that's investing in the publication and we love it so much. But what it also tells me is that you have this opportunity because you have people that have such love of the brand, children that love Toys R Us, right? Think about that. Like when Toys R Us closed, my my son who was seven or eight at the time, he cried because he was afraid toys. He couldn't. He hadn't discovered the internet at this point, but to him, walking in the toy store and seeing aisles of toys was magic. It was like Christmas every time he went to this toy store. It's like this giant sort of uh, room of toys. I think for a lot of people in these high, these affinity publications, the same thing. One of the things that we're doing is we're saying, why don't we reinvest in print, but differently than we do digital. And so we're actually segmenting it off. And what we're trying to do is what I call aviation porn. like the reason people subscribe to flying is because of the beautiful photography, the highly long form evergreen articles that they can keep and the fact that when they, they can put them on the coffee table And when their friends come over or their family comes over, they see the aviation publication. I think pilots, in many ways, it's not something that is, it takes a lot of work and effort to become a pilot. You have to constantly stay after it to keep your skills just up to par to stay stay safe. It's really a lifelong commitment. People that do, that are pilots, are super, super dedicated to it. And they want to show all their friends. They're like, They're like doctors that have, it's like a hobby. And you know this, you know, people that are into motorcycles love to talk about motorcycles or people that are hunting and fishing want to talk about hunting and fishing. People that are into aviation love aviation. And so for us, we're going to be doubling down on print, but we're not going to treat it the way a magazine news would treat it. We're going to treat it as a coffee table, something that is a, almost a frameable piece of art. So when people see it, it's the Annie Leibovitz of beautiful photography. Annie Elizabeth's books are like a couple thousand dollars for like photography. She does like celebrities and stuff, but people spend thousands of dollars for print books because they showed around. And I think we have the same ability not to charge thousands of dollars, but the same ability to sort of build on the fact that people in the aviation community want to show off the fact that they have this love of this community they're curious about what's happening. They love the airplanes. And so it's all about doubling down on what what is already great about flying, which is this wonderfully beautiful brand that is the brand in the industry. And we're just going to double down on that. And I think I, the interesting thing is thinking about, like, acquiring businesses. I chose aviation and flying because I love it. I'm a diehard pilot. And that really resonates as I sort of talked about buying flying. My message to the readers in in the community was, I'm a pilot. This is a passion project. I'm one of you. I'm not a professional pilot by any means. I don't fly for an airline. I don't even have enough hours to be an instructor. But I'm one of you. I'm really, I love aviation. And it really resonated with the community. I think that there's a lot of these similar assets out there where you have a strong connected community and maybe even a long-term legacy community it has been around for many years that the magazine has sort of not had a lot of attention or love from a publisher that you could pick up for not a significant amount of money relative to the business metrics. And you could build something amazing with it. I think that's what I'm most excited about this.
0: Yeah, there's so much you could do there. It's really exciting to watch. You've now started and acquired a media business is there one that so far at least i mean you're only three weeks into flying but is there one that you prefer you're starting not from zero with flying but there's a lot of practices that have already been in place for a long time that are maybe harder to change versus on your own is there one version that you prefer over the other
1: i think if we're talking media specifically by every day 10 times that. because the thing is like starting a media brand or a contributor brand. And Freightways was, like, we were a cold start. It took a long time for people to take us serious. And it took a long time before contributors would come on to even do even interviews in print or even respond to emails. It took a long time before. And even today, there are times when the legacy publishers, the people we compete with at Freightways. Don't take us serious They don't consider us as, as credible. Now, the broader world does. The broader world considers us more credible than they are. But in this community, at times, you, you get this sort of like, well, you guys aren't real. You're, you're going to flame out at some point and go out of business. I'm like, No, but it's hard building a real media brand. I think we got lucky in some ways. We started in the mid-2016, you know, 2017. Our industry hadn't invested a lot in content historically, so it was sort of a big gap in it. Now, there's a lot of people that are doing it in our industry, and I suspect in a lot of other industries. So it's much more difficult to sort of cold start something. Uphill battle. This was also at a time when Facebook was very easy as a publisher. This was sort of the, the period when Facebook loved media content. They loved, absolutely love media content. And then they went through this weird thing in 17 or 18 where they started to deprioritize media content. I think post-election, 16 election really did this to them and they started to prioritize your community, your friends. I think they've sort of now moved slightly more towards media family content. But having said that, it was right time, right place, right set of conditions that enabled us to sort of really scale quickly, and our competition wasn't great. I think it's difficult. It is a lot of work and a lot of effort to do that. It's not impossible, and there will be successful outcomes of people that are developing content. There will be some great brands that come from it. But I can tell you, in having flying, I've had it for three weeks, CEOs of the largest aircraft manufacturers, household brands, have sent me personal emails. I mean, these are big companies that are iconic companies. Even for my wife, an iconic company, right? I had a COO of another large aircraft manufacturer who has become my best friend. I've never met the person, but in text exchanges, I had one phone call with him and Basically, I now know a lot about his background. I think he texted me all night, a couple nights ago. My wife was like, who is that? Like, she's thinking some girl that I'm back and forth with. It's like, no, this is is an executive at an aircraft manufacturer. And so what's the nice part about taking an existing brand is if your story is, I am buying this because I love it and I am one of you, then it's so much easy to sort of grab that and build on it the audience already loves what that brand is all about. And so I think media assets, and we've seen recent deals, the hustle got bought by a HubSpot, you know, morning brew got bought by another media brand, but the hustle, you've seen barstool sports get bought by Penn nationals sort of ignited this whole world of sports and gambling combines sports content and gambling combined. I think we're going to see you in the next decade, there's a renaissance of people realizing that there's a lot of noise out there, a lot of people putting out content, but there are these very specific brands that have such engaged communities that you cannot replicate that with the internet. The history of what they built over the last hundred years and the generational, the multi-generations that these brands represent, I think is going to be something that people wake up and realize that media brands attached to another type of business. It's got to be in the core audience. They're just going to be so valuable. And I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, Hustle's a little different because it's a modern sort of modern media brand bought by a modern technology company. I do think we're going to see an opportunity for these really strong affinity-oriented brands to become very valuable assets for the right community or the right network because they are content machines. Everyone's investing in content marketing. The most effective content marketing in the world is someone who is a media brand covering the stories. The thing that I often tell people who want to go into content marketing is that don't go hire marketing people. I know this is offensive to a marketing person that I'm actually having a conversation with this. Marketing people typically are not great journalists, and journalists are not great marketers. That is a feature, not a bug. Ultimately, a journalist is all about engagement and stories. They don't really care about about marketing your product because they won't sell out, right, in their own minds. They want to tell the story. But they're the ones that know how to drive people into your content. They know how to tell the facts and be credible. Marketers aren't very good at that. The other thing, just sort of as a side, is a journalist doesn't typically become a journalist because they want to make a lot of money. They do it because they want to tell stories. And so you do see this big sort of arbitration in price of what a marketer, a really good marketer that can be a storyteller is going to cost you as a business It's probably two to three times what an equivalent journalist would, would take. Now, the issue is getting a journalist means that you as a business owner are going to have to sort of give them the freedom to be a journalist, sort of back away from wanting to only have your product pushed. But if you're willing to do that, then you have this amazing opportunity to take their natural skill in telling stories and breaking stories and driving engagement combined with your brand. And I think it's just magic.
0: What college class would you teach if you could teach about any subject you wanted?
1: Technology would probably be venture capital, technology, startups, entrepreneurship, and a tech business. Those are always fun. I'm just always enamored with technology. I think that those are like what the future in the next decade looks like is always interesting to me. I really enjoy that. Now, I think if I were to teach a class that I think I could offer a lot of value to, it would probably be in a content, marketing side of the world is talking about that. But there's a lot of things that I think content and media is really interesting. I'm still a student at it. I do supply chain news and media. This is my full-time job, if you will, flying sort of a side hustle. It's interesting because I don't consume a lot. People assume that I read every article I'm on the weekends watching freight media or freightway stuff. Not at all. Like to me, that's work. It's not much fun when you're doing it all day every day for me this isn't my diversion for me where i really enjoy is learning about media businesses learning about startups learning about the trials and tribulations i always love when founders talk about how they failed and the business almost went under and they sort of pulled it out or didn't and you're like okay this is a really interesting topic and so those things are always fun to me uh, to talk through But I'm a big fan of financial metrics. I mean, the area I spend a lot of time is looking at valuation metrics. A lot of people sort of want to disintegrate finance from business. They're like, well, I don't want to talk about valuations. I don't want to talk about balance sheets or profit or income statements or cash flow. Then why are you running a business, I ask? Because those are all that matters. Like, at the end of the day, innovation matters, product matters. Yes. But if you go up against someone who's better financed or has access to better financing than you, they can eventually outspend you and beat you. So yes, having a good product is important, but you need to also understand finance because if you don't understand finance, you will not understand opportunities. And that's what enabled me, looking at flying specifically, I understood what valuations were going out in media. And I made a very nice offer to the publisher, but I also understand what valuations are going out in technology businesses. And if I could, looking at Freightways. If I could combine the two, you know, we, we just raise money at 15 times revenue. Media businesses run at about sort of upper end, most important properties at four times revenue. So a massive arbitrage from 15 to four. So if you can sort of take that, and that was all of Freightways. That included media, which is half our business, and SaaS. And SaaS metrics is like 28 times but we wanted to go there. But if you can sort of combine the two efforts – of saying, okay, now I need to go find some technology businesses to sort of add to this community, then you have this really nice arbitrage. And so I love valuations because I think finance, even though I'm not, I don't prepare ways financial statements, I'm not an accountant, I love looking at a financial statements because that's no different than looking at a sports record. It's all stats, right? This is my scorecard. And I think founders could do a much better job of trying to understand finance how their industry is constructed from a financial standpoint, how valuations are going, because I think they'd be much more successful and frankly find opportunities that they probably wouldn't be obvious to them.
0: What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on?
1: That's difficult because I'm a pretty fluid person. I don't know that I have super strong beliefs that don't evolve. I I know I have biases. I think the thing that I've learned most of all is that I can be comfortable. This is something I've learned about myself. I can be comfortable not being involved in every decision in my company. I can basically not know a lot of what's happening. I think there's a tendency of a founder who did every job, which I did, to want to be involved in every decision. And we get a little insecure about it. Even though these people work for me, you get a little insecure when they're making decisions without you because you're like, what if they make the wrong decision? But is it really just they make the wrong decision? Or is it your own ego talking? i have had to learn, particularly in a work from home environment, where we are at work from anywhere, and we're not in the office, that it's harder to know as a founder, or as a CEO, or whatever your job is, it's hard to know through osmosis what's happening. The nice thing about being in an office is information flows, like there's a lot of signals of things happening, that you just sort of instinctually pick up without even having to ask. You don't need reports. In a work-from-home environment, that doesn't exist. And so in a work-from-home environment, you are very dependent upon people that are responsible for moving parts, sort of the organism of the business to feed information to you. And they've got to be, A, willing to do that, but you also have to be willing not to know everything. And I think it's hard to do that as a founder. You have a sense of guilt because you don't feel like you're working very hard. At least that's how I felt. You feel left out, which makes you a little insecure. And I think as founders, we have this sort of egos, at least I do, where I want to be the hero. You're the underdog when you first start your business. No one believed in you. At least that was my case. And so I had something to prove. Nothing gave me more pleasure in the early days of being like, you were right, or you did this. You're the best at this. The reality is not that. The reality is when your business is successful, you're able to bring in much better talent than you will ever be at any one of these jobs. And you sort of have to let it go. You have to sort of let those people run. And as long as you have a good foundational relationship and there is very clear lines of where you start and you stop and they start, where you're sort of maintaining some degree of control over the outcome, and it's not easy for them or you, then I think it can work really well. And that's exactly what we have at Freeways.
0: I like it. What's the best business you've ever seen?
1: Uh, Prologis. Industrial real estate. So, they're an investor in freightways, but it's a real estate business. So, you have all the sort of luxuries of being in real estate, but they're investing in warehouses, which on the surface sounds like a really boring business. But when you understand that warehouses are not subject to as much during the down cycle, particularly with e commerce, when the economy struggles people are still making substantial investments in warehouses e-commerce is driving that it's a real estate right so you have nice going cash flow you own the land under the so if things go really south you still have an asset i just think it's a real estate business buying warehouses this is like really it sounds like a boring business but it's a cash flow machine and the fact that you can leverage it up and acquire these businesses through debt again i love finance i love debt financing Something magical about being able to raise it 2% or 3% interest rates and generate 15 to 20% returns. I just think that's so cool. And so the the warehouse side of the world, I think, is just industrial real estate is just a really cool business that generates a lot of cash flow and you're building something. It's a box. That's what it is. That's all it is. A box that stores stuff. But it's a really profitable box.
0: Yeah, a box full of other boxes.
1: And they make a lot of money managing boxes they build these warehouses which provide large footprints they deal with all the stuff that people typically don't want to deal with like local municipalities they don't want trucks moving in and out and it's a cash flow machine and as long as they put the boxes in the right place they lease this building out they're getting they get to finance it for 30 or 40 years and they get all the cash flow coming in It's just, who doesn't love that business like that's great like it is a lot less work i don't mean any disrespect for prologis or any other real estate person. There's a lot less work that goes into something like that than what we as other founders have to meet as a constant drive. It's sort of you're a slave to it in some ways. The warehouse business is just great because you build it. Your tenants pay you money. Hopefully they're financeable and bankable and boom, you're done.
0: I love it. This has been awesome, Craig. Thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast. I love learning about different media businesses and especially yours as you take over flying and start making changes and improvements. I'm so excited to watch it and hopefully be part of it in some way, at least as a subscriber. That'd be fun.
1: Well, Alex, would love to have you. I mean, let me know. I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find things Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Lightbook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.